Welcome to the P3 Podcast. The Pronoctis Performance Podcast is the place to be if you're interested in topics such as mindset, coaching, personal development, elite performance, and leadership development. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the P3 Podcast. Uh, super delighted today to bring a fantastic guy, not only a good friend of ours at Pronoctis, but also a fantastically qualified coach working at elite level and also a huge amount of experience regarding organizational development as well. Um, he's currently the head coach of the Paracanoe Sprint Team, which obviously has just gone through a massive wave of, wave of change in terms of uh, targets, with Tokyo slipping nearly 12 months or so. Um, and I think he's going to bring a huge amount of experience and theory and knowledge that we're going to learn loads from. So without further ado, Scotty Simon, thanks very much, mate. Thanks for joining us here on the P3 Podcast. Thanks, Phil. Uh, nice to see you again. It's been a few years. Looking forward to it. Yeah, it's been a while, and and congratulations, mate, on all your achievements. Really, really, you know, chuffed for you and proud of you. And and you know, the content you're going to provide today is really going to resonate with our listeners. So uh, thanks, mate, much appreciated. Right, so Scotty, um, what people won't know is they can Google you, and they'll find out everything you're doing around, obviously, the the para canoe scene, you know, and the fantastic role within that as head coach. Um, just to set the context on the background a little bit, could you share a little bit about your personal journey from? where it all started regarding coach development and, and personal coaching and how you got into this, this current role. Because I know there's a lot of key, key steps in there, isn't there? And there's some key incidences and, 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 and situations, if you don't mind sharing. Uh, yeah, well, it's, it's a long and varied story. I suppose I'm in my second professional career now. Um, did uh, 20 years in the RAF, um, working in a very similar <laughs> field to yourself. Uh, got broken and then I finished that and then moved into, well, just, just really fortunate, right place, right time, and then moved into um, high performance sport, really. But I guess there was a little bit before that as well where I played professional rugby for a little bit. Um, got broken there as well, so there's maybe a, a theme. Um, but uh, on reflection, many years later, I think those early sporting experiences have been really impactful and really powerful for me more around my um, coaching and leadership philosophy. So some of the negative experiences have probably happened there. I've been able to, to utilise in a really positive way now. And um, So I think, yeah, just, just mention that piece as well because I think it's really fundamental to who I am, where I've got to, and how I've ended up here. So when you're saying you got broken a couple of times um, regarding rugby, and I'm guessing the other one was, was the military, can you mm -hmm. just give us a bit more information on that, if that's all right? Uh, yeah, so um, initially I was, I was kind of in and out of in, international squads, really, at various different age groups within the, the rugby space. Um, and then I broke my neck, really, and that, that, that stopped that, that career. Uh, but that opened another door in terms of the RAF and kind of what I did there and then the, how that um, became a, an, another lifelong passion of just, well, if I can't do the activity anymore, I'm really enjoying kind of coaching it. And then I just ended up coaching to coaching. So I just ended up kind of in a, a different sphere there, really. So uh, that was really important. And then I think as I as I developed as a coach and then sought out more um, knowledge within a particular area, I just started reading about things like Carol Dweck and Decky and Ryan, who, you know, were talking about growth mindsets and um, uh, how important the environment you create is. And, and basically this this person from Stanford could have been writing a about my journey so it really resonated and really connected and then again like i'm saying that the things that didn't work for me there i've been able to then create the environment subsequently that have really helped me so i think that's that's been really key to, to shaping my philosophy and then um probably as you know then into that second career in the raf was working at quite a high level in some very consequential environments and i guess that the, the short story is i basically fell off a mountain um bit of a neck injury again, shoulder, but the thing that really kind of set me back was a head injury really that's um, got a traumatic brain injury and then that, that kind of like led to the door and, and exiting the RAF, which then opened another one within performance sport. What, what jumps out at me straight away, Scotty, is it, it seems, correct me if I'm wrong, that whenever you sort of come up against adversity, you saw it as an opportunity to progress and improve. And I think, you know, just look at your big picture career. That's, that's what's happened, hasn't it, in terms of the level you're operating at now? Yeah, and maybe I don't, I don't necessarily see it ever as a barrier. Um, like, 
I've never announced my international retirement either. So if, if Gatlin's watching, <laughs> I'll be available for the new twenty twenty. You know, I, I just see it as just like, right, well, this is an issue. Um, I need to overcome that and, and kind of start cracking on, you know. So uh, sport, coaching, um, setting targets, goals has just been like really key in, in me doing that, really. Perhaps a coping strategy, perhaps that's who I am, but just chunking away, chunking away, chunking away and, seeing that gradual improvement has been, been really important to me. Is that something you do consciously? Because obviously I think when, when we're consciously coaching, we're looking to sit down and set those you know, clarity around goals, purpose, where we're going, what the journey is, but we don't always apply it to self. I mean, do, is this something you work hard at yourself or is it just, you know, just naturally, naturally? Um, yeah, I, I think it is. Uh, so du- during my career in the RAF, I think I, I did that on a professional level that became the thing that I threw myself into. So it was never a box ticking exercise. It was more about how can I develop experience and expertise within the area that just led to qualifications or, or whatever else kind of come in. Um, and I guess since since I've left, that's become really, really key. So um, you, you get some support when you're injured and then as soon as you leave, that, that support's taken away. So... Something that happened um, after I left was uh, the Invictus Games pathway kind of came on really and that was something that I kind of grabbed at and um, I just ended up uh, going into powerlifting for within that and that's really helped me in terms of giving myself structure, targets, goals on a daily basis. So use the Invictus pathway, that, that was unbelievably um, life-changingly inspirational. And then since then, I've kind of carried on that journey uh, on a personal level through sport, um, which I think as as well helps my coaching and my leadership. But um, I now lift internationally uh, for Great Britain powerlifting as well. Yeah, and and I do see, and I do follow you on Instagram that you're really active there in terms of not just showing your work, I was also trying to inspire the next generation as well in terms of what you can do. Yeah, and I think that's been that's been really key. Uh, you talk about the, the present situation, COVID, we're in just now, where everybody's goals are just gone. Where, or actually, um, that that's really helped me to at least set in in the absence of some competition goals, I can set some petition uh, personal ones for this month, next month, whatever you know, and I can still keep that structure, clarity, and progression going. Yeah, great stuff. I can see you're really active, which is great to see. And also, just for the people that maybe are not familiar with the Invictus Games, can you just give a quick overview of what that is and what it's for? Yeah, so um, Invictus Games is probably it started by Prince Harry as a sports recovery pathway. Um, so it's for any any person that gets injured um, on a, within the military, really, on, on active service. So for me, that was within the training environment. Um, and and that, that can be difficult because uh, probably at the back end of the um, Afghanistan um, campaigns, and then you're seeing like you know double triple amputees, and you're thinking, oh, I'm a bit of a fraud here, you know. And especially with something like a head injury, which um, it was a big stigma in the last few few years of of the RAF, where I kind of looked the same, but I, I absolutely wasn't. Um, so you, you kind of overcoming all those, but basically what it does, it's, it's a rehabilitation journey and it, it just helps sport put people's lives back together. And, um, you've got, it, it doesn't necessarily, it is a high standard in some areas, but in others you could have somebody who's just lifting the bar, you know, so you could, somebody who's like pushing 200 kilos and somebody it's 20 kilos. So you, you're getting an elite end and just, it, it doesn't matter. It's about personal goals and overcoming barriers and, and setting them back into a more positive life. So that, that's what it's for. I can imagine being in the environment during the time of the Invictus Games that the, the Esprit de Corps is incredibly strong. It must be a special place. It, it, it was overwhelming. Um, you know, I've never professional sports, whether that's Paralympic, Olympic, uh, professional rugby, I've never, never felt anything like that before um, or since. But it wasn't just the British team either. It was just like you got into the environment and you had uh, a, a global cohort of 500 athletes who all, all of them, that esprit de corps was, it's indescribable really. And you felt yourself almost like, well, I did a few times, I was becoming overwhelmed and bursting into tears just with, I don't know, just, just the amazing, elated 
I, I can't describe it. It's, it's just something different. Yeah, it's quite clear that, that is. And I, mean, and I think when you've gone through something like that, you know, people do say you left speechless. And obviously, clearly, many, many, many years later, it's, it's still hard to describe because it's an internal feeling, isn't it? Internal feeling. Yeah, you, you know, you, you come into like a, an opening ceremony or something and you get, you get off a bus and there's like 20,000 people all going absolutely crazy, but in a really positive, um, super supportive way. Um, and it, you know, we go to a rugby football match, and it can be a little bit tribal. You know, it's it's them and it's us. So you get you get people cheering for you and people booing against you. But there, it was just everybody was just for you, and it was yeah, it was just really yeah, life changing really. I remember, if I remember, I don't know if it was the one you, you the Invictus Games you competed in, but there was um, there was a snippet on the news with Mark Ormerod, um probably one of our highest profile sort of um, Invictus Games competitors. Um, I think it was a, a swimmer. Was this the one you were in? It was a swimmer who was trained for years to this race. And there was only two people in this category. And the other person was ill or sick, so they couldn't race. So because the rules said you need two people to race for, to, to count, Mark Ormerod climbed out of the, the stand to go and race this guy in a, in a race he'd never competed in before. I think it was like the butterfly just to make sure this guy had had a race. And I think that just sums it all up, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, there's, there's so many examples. Yeah, so many. Yeah, it's fantastic that. Okay, so um, going into your current role then, can you give us just a description of what your current role is regarding Paracanoe? Uh, yeah, so I'm the head coach of the Paralympic programme now. So I'm, um, it's a world-class programme, lottery funded, uh, amazing to, to be supported in that way. Um, but I'm basically I'm responsible for all levels uh, and aspects of performance, um, from technical coaching right through to sports science, medicine, and the holistic development of the athlete and the staff that kind of comes with that. And um, so that's what I do day to day. And then at major championships and the Paralympic Games, I, I work in a slightly different role. I become what's called a team leader, um, and I. It all all areas um, of, of performance and delivery of that performance becomes my responsibility. So very, very busy, it sounds like. That's a big, 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 busy role. And I think that, you know, the, the people listening at home, they're probably used to seeing that, you know, two or three week competition on TV at the Olympics, but they don't see the amount of work that goes in getting, never mind the athlete, but the team and the equipment to, to that. Um, and before we come on to talk about Tokyo and obviously it's slipping, can you give us a little bit of flavour around, you know, the, the four-year cycles? You know, you've obviously went to Rio four years ago. Can you give us a, just paint a picture of what that's like to be involved in? Yeah, so uh, Paracanoe debuted in Rio in 2016. So that was our first event, our uh, first Games. Uh, and Great Britain Paracanoe team absolutely smashed it. So we had six events kind of come in there and we medalled in um, five of those. And our our sixth athlete delivered a, a lifetime best. Uh, so we, we you know absolutely beyond all expectations. Um, so you'll kind of come out of that, and year one of the next, the Tokyo cycle would have started in 2017. So you kind of cross your fingers. You hope UK Sport um, give you the funding you need to achieve your ambitions. You, there's a little bit of a yeah, sitting on eggshells there till all that's confirmed. And then there's a there's a huge strategy development piece that's kind of put in place um, across that four years. And then you kind of get on with it. So year one is will be generally rebuilding. Um, and then it will be refining. Uh, year three, which we would have been in 2019, is about qualification. So that becomes a probably the most high-pressure um, pass-fail uh, year within the cycle because you're either getting to games or you're not and then games then just becomes uh, you could argue that that's slightly easier um, because the hard work's now been done and it's just about going and hopefully collecting um, so it's a, it's a very simplified view of the, the four years really So again I'm sure a lot of our listeners haven't spent much time around sort of Paralympian sort of athletes and, and the conditions they have. What sort of challenges are, the, are these, these races up against? What do they face? Um, well, I think that one of, the, one of the fantastic things about uh, canoe is that as soon as you sit in a canoe, you know, the, it, it's kind of normalised. 
So there's, there's 10 different classifications across all of Paralympic sports and our athletes um, classify in three of them. So you'd have to have a loss of function through a spinal cord injury, for example, um, a loss of limb um, or a loss of range of motion within that limb. So you could have, you know, a fused ankle through to an amputation through to a spinal cord injury. So they, they're the three main um, uh, classification impairment types that, that we utilize. But I think once again, linked to your kind of like leadership and coaching philosophies, you, you kind of, an athlete's an athlete, you know, they, they need coaching and it, it's, you, you just see it. It's probably more obvious um, that we're individuals within Paralympic sport because, you know, there's, there's a more obvious piece that, that is or isn't um, functional. But, but actually, if, if you start to strip that down to any of us, we're different shapes, sizes, um, mobilities, fitness qualities, you know, it's actually, it's just about individualization. So I've kind of not really answered your question there, um, but uh, maybe gone down a different track. But so, so really, it's just it's just any of the challenges that, that we or uh, any other athlete, I think, would, would face. Yeah, no, I, I completely get where you're coming from there. I mean, I remember having a conversation with um, you know, Dave Weir, the, one of our most successful Paralympians of all time, and he said, he said he doesn't think he'll see it in his lifetime, but I want to, he said, I want to drop at the Paralympian title. We're all Olympians. He said yeah. that that's when you get equality. When we're either, he said, I'm not so necessarily we have to be in the same venue at the same time, which is which is a hope and a dream of his. But at some point in the future, I'd like to think that we're just all Olympians um, to the point where it's in his, his you know brain now that he's starting to dislike the term Paralympian. Uh, yeah, and, and you can. So with, with the term Paralympian, it's it's like a social reference. So you know the the reference we've put that there. It's it's on disability. It's on the, the para bit, not not Olympian, and that's something that I'm very mindful within my language. I'll, I'll just talk about athletes because it's it's the person first reference rather than a disability. No, great. That's no, a great point, and I think I think at some point we will get there. I certainly hope hope so. That's for sure. Um, so let's, let's bring it back onto the present day then. Um, I really want to talk about leadership and coaching and the leader as a coach and vice versa later on. But before that, the last few weeks must have been a bit manic for you, obviously with COVID coming out and, and dates and goals and training programs all changing. Can you, can you give us a little bit of a flavour of what it's been like? Yeah, I think it's been particularly crazy for, for anybody um, within a leadership position. Um, there was a, there's a probably a little bit for us as well, that, that for the complicated things. So I, I don't know whether you remember Storm Dennis, um, for those of us that are probably watching in the UK, but there was there was three storms on subsequent weekends that we had immediately preceding um, the COVID issue. And basically what that did was that flooded um, our regatta course, which canoe, okay, that's fine. But what that actually meant was that there was something like nine foot of water within our boat base. So our entire training environment was um, completely flooded out. Um, disruption of training, rewriting of training plans, uh, rushing around to try and rescue boats so they didn't get crushed under water pressure. So we had a real crisis into a real crisis. Um, but it, with the floods, I, I, I take that anytime because at least you know what you're getting and you can predict water kind of going up or down with the whole covid thing it's it's not been predictable um i think there's some massive massive learning that will really help you know organizational development and, and leadership that will probably come out of this when we've all got time to reflect and pause but anybody who successfully navigated this i would give a job <laughs> in, a, in a heartbeat really kind of going forward but it's and the big thing for me has been it's just been so fast moving that by the time you've kind of like understood the situation, made a decision um, that and communicated it, that decision has no longer been valid um, because it was like four, four, four hours, for example, and that decision now at date because government advice has changed or, or something or another, you know. So I think that's been the biggest challenge. And now we're just into this almost fallow period we're just waiting for lockdown to end and then we're into that other stuff that we just talked around goals and things like that you know where all of that's been taken away yeah and i think what you were talking about there regarding you know the the speed of communication um i think a lot of the organizations certainly we work with some of them are not that 
that brisk swishay or swift to communicate. I mean, we're talking two, three, four-week lag. We've got to go through the red tape, go, go, go through all the channels, get signed off, and then it's got to get positioned with the communication piece. And then all of a sudden, and then because the person who's actually sending it out doesn't have the full context, it still goes out. Yeah. You know, so they haven't got the big, full strategic um, picture. And we talk a lot about working agile and being um, uh, flexible with our approach uh, within leadership. And I suppose that's, that's what I'm seeing. I'm seeing the leaders that are flexible, agile. And to be honest with you, the ones who have invested in their personal development, you know, they've got high levels of self-awareness. They understand what their strengths and their weaknesses are. They're standing up as a leader rather than taking a step back. Um, yeah. And, and they're, they're leading through emotional intelligence regarding, first off, let's check everybody's okay. Let's check in with them. You know, let, let's not worry about the stock markets crashing. Let's not worry about that because we, we, that's not going to go away. We'll have to sort that out. But let's just pick up the phone on a humanistic level and say, hey, how are you doing? How are you settling in? Is everything okay? And is that something that you guys were on to? Yeah, it became massive. Uh, so, so very early on, you, you know, it's, it's all about performance, performance, performance. And that's, that's your, your first level really within um, world-class programs. You know, does it make the boat go faster? That's what we're going to make a decision around. But it quickly became, well, actually, this is about the person. And the performance decision here is the health of, of our athletes. So it's about putting the person first because performance will will and you know what we're about and be improved long term because of that anyway whereas if we put performance and force them out to, to go and train um, into gyms or environments that they could uh, pick up the the infection then ultimately that was going to lead to um, lesser performances because they're going to be ill um, injured or, or whatever else you know so it, it became pretty pretty easy um, once you've kind of made that decision. And then I think there's some stuff there around how well you use and empower your team as well to make those decisions. And people who are better connected to the core face, to the reality of that fast-moving situation, trust in and empower them. Just just make the call, you know, and then you, you kind of back them, people. Um, and I think the other thing that I've learned really is just being really honest and just going, <laughs> I don't have the answers here. Do you know what? Nobody does. We're working it out. We will make mistakes, but as soon as we do and we recognise that, we'll we'll amend it and, and try and make an improvement. So just just come with us on this journey, um, because we ain't got the answers. I think that's been really important. Yeah, it's, it's that transparency, I think, and I, I understand. Obviously, there's big strategic stuff sometimes you can't share because for whatever reason. But when the day to day running of it, the day to day conversations, just just having that ability to be a little bit vulnerable and say i don't know either i don't have all the answers but what i will say to you is i'll have a conversation with you and we'll try or i'll try and make the best decision if it's going to fall on me for the information i have right now because i think there's some strong principles in that regarding decision making isn't there yeah i think so and then you're going to get you're going to get people and then you're going to get outliers in terms of what you want to do you know so I think as, as soon as i could you know it'd be like right here's a decision bang it's enacted as soon as I managed to get like five minutes where I could then kind of go okay so let me just explain to you why that decision was made and then the factors that this involved um, so they might not still like the decision but at least they could understand it and then kind of buy into it so I think that's been really important as well when you've had something that's really contentious like you must cease training and you must look after your own health but to some to some of those athletes they that's no, because Tokyo was still on the table at that point, and that was something that they really didn't want to hear. Um, so I think that, that's been really important as well, so you can just unpack everything as soon as you've had time as well in terms of how you've made those decisions. Yeah, and we're starting to get into that field of decision-making now, aren't we, just naturally through the conversation. I know it's an area that you've done a lot of, lot of research, a lot of development, and I think you've wrote some papers on. Um, what's been your themes and approaches and findings regarding decision-making? Uh, well, I think there's been there's been a, a few really. So there's, there's probably some academic stuff, and then there's actually what does this mean, and then how do I use it? So a lot of that stuff has maybe been more of a, a leadership team development, personal development context. So we can kind of go down either one of those really. Um, but I guess that the stuff that, that I'm probably the easiest way to start with, I've, I'm in a what we call a, a professional doctorate. So it's basically a PhD, but it should be at more of a, an applied level. Um, so I'm just kind of writing up the thesis of that now, which actually this is giving me 
a great opportunity or an excuse that I can't kind of get out of in terms of doing that writing up piece. Um, so it's, it's specifically around observation, really. And, and as a coach, what are we looking at and what are we responding to, you know, in terms of the performance? Because clearly we need to give feedback to the athlete, to the person or whatever about improving their performance. So going back to that military world, there was, there was some stuff that we used to work through there around heuristics and how um, people would make decisions there. So heuristics is kind of like a rule of thumb, really, that we'll default to, that will fill in the blanks for us if we haven't got um, all the available information. But if you think of what's happening with the athlete in front of you, then how could you possibly know all of the pieces that's kind of going in there in terms of joint angles, speed, a range of movement, you know, you could, a computer would struggle to do all of these kind of calculations as well as the invisible stuff around like athlete intent. So actually when you're observing your athlete, what is it that you're observing? And what we, what we found within the first kind of paper I wrote really that heuristics do work within that environment for us to kind of, default to in terms of rules of thumb um, <clears throat> but the, the heuristics and biases community just just see heuristics as, as sources of error whereas actually what we found or, or what I was suggesting is that within an adventure sport context for example um, heuristics can work to speed up the observation and get you to more of an optimal solution so that you could um, mitigate a safety area or, or work on a particular area of uh, technique that the person needed so we did some work around that really and then as that evolved it, it turned into what is the what well let me just rewind the the heuristics are built really on on our experiences um, so what is it that drives those experiences that then forms the technical templates and mental models that, that we're observing for that those biases are kind of created on. So just kind of wanted to do a little bit more really around how does the coach observe if, if those models no longer stand true? So if you move into Paralympic sport, for example, and all of your experiences and knowledge are based on um, an able-bodied model, two arms, two legs, fully functional to use that term, and then suddenly you've got an athlete with no legs or one leg or whatever, how do you then create this mental model that you're now working off um, where your old one kind of now can't stand true? And we kind of went through some stuff through there and that's pretty much led us through to how we then develop these models and then how we create shared mental models within our team. Um, and that's maybe a, a really important factor that we can come back to in a, in a sec really about coming from your personal experiences to actually we're all involved in the development of this particular goal so we all must understand it so speaking the same language is really important there understanding the, the key tasks um, and then how actually where, where I'm kind of getting to now is how naturalistic decision making um, is probably really really important understanding that so naturalistic decision making pretty much says it explains how we make decisions in the real world with real-time pressures, with ambiguity, with uncertainty, you know, what we're in right now, for example. But I'm specifically talking here within the moment, you know, no performance analysis, no GPS. I'm, I'm looking at you doing a particular skill, and then I'm kind of working off that, really. So how, um, how we make sense of what's going on. Um, the person's situational awareness is, is super important, um, and how we maintain that awareness. And then there's some stuff there around pattern recognition and recognition prime decision-making. So those three elements go to really make the, the naturalistic decision-making. Um, and then whether you're in a heuristics camp or a naturalistic camp, it's people talk about intuition. They just respond into in, intuitive. But what we're probably suggesting is that it's not intuitive at all. It's just ease of access of, um, from, from memory. At a subconscious level, you just you're just not having to go into the, the inner vaults and really, you know, cognitively think about it. It's just like it's there, it's there, it's there. So what we're responding to a lot of the time is um, uh, recognition of, of patterns, for example, that are built up and stored in memory based on all of those experiences that we've had within our lifetime. I, I think um, you you see that really 
commonly regarding um, what the neuroscientists would obviously say is the neural pathways, just that the pathways are, are used more um, so they're a bit more easier to access that memory, that, that, that level of knowledge to, to be able to replay again. And that's why sometimes I suppose as a trap for some coaches, you always try and solve a similar problem with the same solution because it's worked in the past. Is that something that, that we're getting into there we're talking about? Yeah, exactly. And then if, if your similar solution no longer applies because we've only got one leg instead of two, then, then you're into a trap, you know, or you're coaching what you've done in the past, not necessarily what's needed now and in the future. Um, I think there's some also some stuff there that if you know this, then you can set up your environment to help support you. So how do you get check and challenged as a coach? And then again, in terms of the, the leadership, the philosophy, the culture that supports that really, how do you put things in place? Um, to allow that check and challenge to happen. Yeah, and we, we, we see this regularly within organizations that are trying to build like a coaching culture, but it's, it's, not, it's not fluid, it's not joined up, it's not connected. It's just, right, we'll get 10 or 12 people across the organization as, as coaches, so they're going to be business performance coaches within the business context, but that's it. Now you're coaches, that's it. So there's not going to be any alignment between my language you know, and the way I communicate with you regarding that coach the coach development, that coach supervision, that continual loop. And I think it's, it's always a question, isn't it? Well, who's coaching the coaches? Who, who's, who's supervising and observing the psychologists and, and the therapists, if you like, if you want to go down that avenue? Because I think when you've got that open mind for learning, you should always be open to feedback. You've got to model what you're trying to portray. Yeah, and you know, a, a great example of that is, <clears throat> you know, you, you you put half a dozen coaches, but it may be the same within business, you know, experts. But let's just use that phrase. And then if you ask an expert to describe a particular thing, they will all probably have slightly different descriptors of the thing, or um, they, will, they will define the phases of that thing in slightly different ways. So um, <clears throat> a good example of that from kind of like the world I sit in at the minute, kayaking, you're obviously going to put your blade into the water and then you want to drive past that blade. Well, actually, once the, the blade, it's Newtonian physics, right? So once the blade's orientated and you put in force, every action equal and opposite. So that becomes the most important element in propulsing. Um, that's a Welsh word, the propulsing. <laughs> they can act forward. But, you know, there would, there would be uh, so many different ways in which the, the coach would, would call this thing so it might be a lock it might be a catch you know and you, you you're starting to talk across athletes and they're like well what's a lock what's a catch are they different things new practitioners you know um physiotherapists for example we come into the team and they they actually thought they were they were two separate things and then again in terms of the phases um certain coaches would describe it as tip of the blade touching the water to fully submerged Others were um, from actually when you start in your air phase and coming down. So there was, there was a whole heap of different descriptors. And then once you're, once you're trying to then create alignment in teams to solve a problem, so it could be that you, know, you, you want your, your physiotherapist to help within a mobility solution, the strength and conditioning uh, specialist to help strengthen that area, and then your technical coach is going to kind of work on putting it all together. But if we've all got different descriptors, then the, the task that we're all working to solve becomes different. It, it, it drives a siloed mentality. So we need to kind of break that really in terms of the language, the descriptors, um, the, the shared goals that we're all trying to set, and then understanding all of our expertise and putting this back together as well. There's no hierarchy in doing it. It's, it's, it's almost like a Veng um, Feng model, whereas maybe a bubble will, will merge in importance or, or kind of like um, die down a little bit. But um, that, that's kind of where we've, we've ended up going to and how we're using some of this research at, at the core phase. Yeah, you, you use the word I really like there. And this is probably one I use quite regularly. So it's alignment, you know, in terms of when, when we go into an organization and we're looking at, you know, that initial consultancy phase, we're actually looking for where are they aligned and where are they misaligned? So it might well be um, a process, it may be language, it may be, you know, the, the clarity on the goal or the process, you know, and if that's not aligned, it doesn't matter what training or education we do, because that's where the, that's where the, the, biz, the rubber hits the road. 
Then once we've got them aligned, can we develop them, you know, develop them to achieve that task. And then we could start measuring performance. And I think what happens sometimes is they start measuring performance before checking alignment. Yeah. Or you, or you, you want to, um, you want to evidence your effectiveness within your particular sphere, you know, whereas it's, it's like the sum of the whole and, and somebody will, will start running off because they know what they can do. And, um, but actually it's about putting it all back um, and, and fundamentally is all agreeing on how we're going to solve the problem. Um, the language you're going, to, you're going to use to communicate around it and then how we're going to kind of measure that progression. So, so you, you use the term problems there. I suppose, how do, you, how do you look at different kinds of problems? Obviously, you've got like friendly and wicked and stuff like that. And do, do you literally have a different approach to each one you have? Uh, can you explain that a little bit more? So there's different definitions of problems, isn't there? Some are friendly, so they're on your side. They're, they're, a, good, they're a good problem to have. And some are quite wicked. So short term, they're quite a bit of a barrier to overcome. And then sometimes we can explode them to be bigger problems than they actually are. And they might well be. Because um, I think that feeds into your bias sometimes. If they're, if they're a wicked problem, sometimes we'll not look at them. We'll want to shy away from them. Yeah. Um, but more often than not, they're not as bad as they seem. Uh, is that something you come across? Yeah, there's some of that stuff as well. So there's, there's wicked, there's messy, isn't there? There's, there's, a, there's a few little things like that. So I guess what, what I don't necessarily have, I don't have a, a set sequence, but it's, it's utilizing expertise within the, um, within the team. <clears throat> That'll be my number one goal too. So I think if we're, if we're suggesting that all, all peoples are individuals, so therefore there's going to be individual solutions and probably all, all problems are going to be individual solution source problems as well. So I guess what I've got is I've got a range of tools, but I don't have a set approach because for me that will drive the bias in how I'm trying to solve the problem and all problems will become a nail. Oh, sorry, and I'll just take a hammer to them, you know, whereas I'll, I'll try and look at them themselves. So I guess what, one of the ways in which we do that, coming back to the leadership philosophy we employ within the team or I try and employ, it's, it's very transformational. Um, I, uh, you know, I, we, we did some great work, years and years worth of, of work in, in an applied environment within the military that we're kind of now bringing in as well. And I think that's been really, really useful for me. Um, but uh, the one thing that we do is I'll, I'll try and create an absolutely flat hierarchy. And sure, I've got some accountabilities and responsibilities because of my role, but that doesn't make me any better or worse than anybody else, from the newest person to the, the saltiest sea dog. Um, but we've all, coming back to that expertise, I want that expertise to emerge, and I want the people to be empowered. It, it, they're, they're responsible and accountable for speaking up and kind of going, oh, do you know what, I see the solution this way, or here's some, some experience and I'm going to upskill the team within that, that becomes really, really important. And the fact that we can all recognize and, and listen to that as well. So that, I think that culture, that leadership philosophy becomes really important and it becomes the bridge to, to, to bringing all this stuff together. So you've got your organizational decision-making, you've got your this, you've got the other, but it's the culture that you create that levies that performance that becomes absolutely critical. And as soon as you start shutting that down, expertise gets shut down with it. Yeah, because it's that classic one of, well, what's the point? And, and you drive disengagement. You, you, people start looking elsewhere for, for employment. Or the way they asked, you know. Yeah. Or, or again, they go back into their silo or, or whatever else. Yeah, and what that does do is delays everything, doesn't it? Delays all your decision-making because you haven't got all the information to hand. And then all of a sudden, yeah, you're not performing at the optimum level. And I think that's where sport is really clear it's about making that athlete go faster you know or improve or do their personal best or win a medal it's measurable at the outcome and i think business is it's 24 7 and, and it always moves and chains and churns so that that culture you're talking about and that effective leadership and i will say you're using coaching language to deliver your leadership it sounds like which is a fantastic place to be and it's probably a, quite a quite a enriching working environment I would have thought yeah I mean it's probably that's that's probably a product of who I am you know and all those experiences have gone to kind of create me which I think when I started off I said actually I've, I've had some experiences as a, as a failed athlete a rugby player which have been really pivotal yeah. to to let me understand now how how I create conditions where where people are less likely to fail you know mm. based on my applied experiences so um it's just getting the best out of people eh? however that might be yeah, absolutely. That's a huge crossover. And we also know that 
there's a time to be transactional in the moment, but it's normally for short periods of time when you just need to get something yeah, done. Yeah, and um, I, I think that's a really important point, Phil, and it, it, it's, it gets lost, you know. It's just like, oh, you know, that must be transactional. And sure, you, you might want to sit there for the majority of your time, but, you know, the last three weeks have told us, right, I need to make a decision, bang, it's done. And in the moment, in crisis, that's what people actually want. But then as soon as I can, like I'm saying, all right, I'm now going to unpack that decision, explain to you why I've made it and, and how it was come to. So I might drop a little bit more transformational then to to kind of like land that, I guess. But um, yeah, they're, they're, they're tools to be used, not, you know, and I think that's it's something that you see a lot in academia. It's it's a, a this versus that. And it's, it's actually, it's not one versus the other. It's, it's like, it's on a continuum for me and they're, they're things that we... We, we should and do need to utilize. Yeah, and I think that's the thing, isn't it? I think that, you know, in academia, a lot of it's science. They try and make everything black and white. Well, actually, in a, in a lab or in research, you might be able to force it that way. But in real life, it's about the practical application of that into an art and then being able to coach as an art. You know, you can have frameworks and structure and theory, but actually you're measured by how you perform in that moment. That's it. And, and I understand why that, you know, I've been through the process now, why, why that happens, because they, they're trying to measure something that, that is, you know, this is a new area of research. Um, and that, that's, that's the academic bit, but that's not how we use it in, in the real world, you know. So um, I think that's, that's really important. Uh, it's, just, it's just a big mishmash of stuff that I kind of dip into and out of these days. Yeah, and uh, there's, a, and there's a couple of projects we're working on at the moment. Um, and uh, Jane, who's, who's our psychologist that works with us at Pronoctus, she's she very much classes herself as a pracademic. You know, she's all about yeah. Whilst I've done all that and I still research and I love it, I'm all about the practical application. So there's that halfway house. And what we're talking about in depth at the minute is is the leader as a coach. So we've touched on it already about your personal style on there. But I think what it all comes back to is you know. Start off with self-awareness. Do you, do you know yourself at all? Do you know where your blind spots are? Do you know where your strengths are? Do you know where your overplayed strengths are? Do you know where your weaknesses are? Because then once you start reflecting on that, A, you're modeling that learning behavior, that growth mindset you linked to there with Carol Dweck, but also you, you're creating more options for yourself, never mind everybody else that you're working with. And all of a sudden then, if everybody else is doing that, all you do have is a rich learning environment of options of working forward. Is that something that, that you would agree with? Yeah, massive. Um, so obviously, you know, we we would have spent twenty years uh, coaching and and, and delivering and, and developing that in others within within the RAF. But so there would have been a huge exposure to you know the whole psychometric stuff and and all of that uh, that that would have been part of there. And then that's kind of carried on really within the high performance world. So it's still it's still massively used. And then I think I'm I'm really aware of myself these days. Um, I think the head injury was was kind of good in that it forced me to be really honest with myself and kind of where where I struggle. Um, and you know, for for a, for a long time, I was I was trying to think, well, you know, I'm over this now, but I'm still not. I've you know, I've got I've got lots of areas that it still does affect me on a daily basis, and I just have to be honest with that and kind of. But I've learned ways in which to, to cope with it. But one of the other things that I've done is I've been really honest with my team. And I've said, you know, this this is what it looks like when I'm performing really well. This is what it looks like when I doesn't. And this is how I need the support and need the challenge to say, right, come on. Um, let, let's take some of this off you, you know. And a, a great example of that was uh, last year we went out to the uh, World Championships Paralympic quota. Highly, highly, probably the the biggest pressure of the entire Paralympic quad that that um, that competition was an absolute breeze the team knew what they were absolutely doing they were they were empowered they did it they did it to a better standard I could do I was just there kind of facilitating them we, we got on a plane and went out to Tokyo um, to the test event and I really struggled out there I struggled with uh, jet lag the the entire fatigue of coming through a major tournament. Um, there was a lot of uncertainty over there as well, and um, how how it kind of then really affected me. And I've gone from probably the best experience of delivering performance within the environment to probably the worst. And I thought it was really important that when I came back, I shared that with the team and kind of went, I really struggled. And um, I think they really valued that as well because they could probably see it. And they, they now have permission to kind of challenge me in an appropriate way. <laughs> I 
but it helps me Phil you know because I, I know that, that they've kind of got my back and they can um, they can kind of look out for me and actually they'll get more out of it anyway because I'll be a more effective leader for it yeah and, and it's all about that vulnerability that trust the teamwork looking out for one another well, you know for, for whatever reason cause that you know you might have a team member now go Scott you look a bit tired today do you need to get you know an early night you're still looking a bit jet lag there's no point doing a 14 hour day today or do you actually need to be really warming up at the minute when are you going to take yourself away for a coffee for half an hour that's all that perfect team dynamics that create success yeah I'm kind of pretty action orientated person you know so um in, in a in a in a, if there's any uncertainty, I want to move to action. It makes me feel better that I'm doing something. It could be just moving bags. It could be the most simple of tasks. But but what that means is that it, it will reduce my capacity. And like you just said there, that they could just kind of go, just chill out. We've got this. Um, go and take five minutes and then you can kind of come back, you know. So I think it's things like that. And then I, I, I recognize that with myself as well. I get an intrinsic... I get a little feeling here that I must act. Yeah. <laughs> but that, again, that, that's your strength, isn't it? You, you, you are action-centered. You like getting stuff done. Yeah. Um, and that's where you get your self-worth from. You know, I, I, do, I do X and Y and I get this result. It doesn't matter what the result is. I can work off that and I'll go again. When I'm not doing anything, it's really difficult when you're sort of that proactive, driven person to get stuff done. Yeah, but I think, yeah, so sorry, I was just going to say, coming back to that stuff earlier on, it's just, I, I'm, it's for me, progress is moving towards a goal, How, however small or minor that is. So now I've understood that actually, you know, from that Tokyo test event experience, that I was needing to move towards a goal. And um, actually, it was probably ineffective. And um, yeah, it, it could have been so much more uh, better utilised. Yeah, we talk, we talk quite a lot about um, managing your energy levels before you need to. So it's, it's well, we're actually moving a stage further. You should always be managing your energy levels because I think take people out of the sporting context, uh, you know, the day-to-day living, we end up borrowing energy, don't we? You know, I mean, I'm sat here with a coffee now, you know, and that gives me a little kick in the morning and then we go again and I'll do some exercise and I'll have another coffee after and, you know, I'll watch TV tonight. Then I want to absorb stuff for personal development. That takes its toll on you, you know, with everything you're doing. And I think it gets to a point where, for you to be on top of your game, you've got to go from progressing towards being on top of your game to, to recharge. And that's the only two boxes you should really be spending your time in. Whereas sometimes I think you can put yourself into a position where you're just on the edge all the time where, ooh, am I going to burn out you or am I going to get the benefits from it from a performance gains? You know? And that's coaching and performing. And mm-hmm. what we do know is when you push yourself too far into that burnout zone, it's a long way back out to recover, to get back to the top of your game. So that proactive position, and we use it, you know, and, and, and we have the conversations of going, well, just go and recharge, just go and recharge for the day. I don't want to hear from you. Let's not speak to each other. Let's just switch off. Let's recover, do whatever. Because for some people, recharge might be being active, but in a different context, you know, uh, and that's how they recharge. That's something you, you, you think about or the language you use? Yeah, and it's really interesting, actually, just, just the, the constraints that's upon us within this um, situation we're in now where it's all remote and I'm spending some time at home for the first time in I don't know how many years which is absolutely lovely but the other thing that it means is it because it's virtual it's almost like 24 hours a day you know and it's you, your phone's non-stop you, you spend hours talking to a laptop and it's it's very hard to kind of switch off as well so you, I think it's it's really important you're at home but you, you're not you know it's almost back to presence yeah. And I think that's, that's something I'm learning, just how to manage my energy through this particular crisis, is that just getting away from this thing <laughs> is really important, you know? Yeah, and, that, that, and again, you know, that's a conversation certainly we had. Um, we were really sort of a big chuck up to, to Nath as well, who I know you know our senior consultant, where we were quickly into support mode for our clients because they were feeling, especially the ones based in London, mm-hmm. where they've now flipped from this you know, five, six day a week in the, in, in the office to now working from home within a week we had calls with them and it was like right you've got to manage your energy levels now start thinking like that start making sure that you know whatever your working day is give again empowering them if you work you know seven in the morning till three and then you go offline and then you sort the kids out and then you come back on eight till ten we'll only book calls and meetings in from then don't be afraid to decline things you know yeah. don't be afraid to leave your phone in another room put it on silent and face down or, or turn it off silent because it's an emergency call whatever but but leave it it doesn't have to live with you all the time because it comes it comes overpowering, overbearing, doesn't it? 
Yeah, you know, you, you, you talked about checking in at the start of meetings, but, it, it, you know, but people misrepresent that as well. And it's almost like, oh, it's a justification or a validation of what I've been doing. And, and look, look how busy and it's just like, well, that's not what I'm asking. I'm asking, how are you? What support do you need? And kind of, is everything okay, you know? <laughs> so it's, 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 I think it's trying to cut through that. So you, you don't end up with like a, a 40 minute intro to, a, you know, a, a meeting where people are just justifying their worth. It's just like, I trust you, just chill out. Yeah, 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 I'm going to do that. And I think what's going to change potentially going to the future now is organisations that weren't willing to give their staff permission to work from home, and that's just lack of trust. And it normally says more about the leader than the individual. I think they're realising that thing is, things are still getting done, jobs are getting done. But rather than measuring busyness, i.e. I could sit at my desk eight till eight all day long and not be productive. Two different things. If you're measuring busyness or measuring productivity, it's two different things, isn't it? And we know that from, from a sports perspective where you could spend 12 hours a day in a canoe. Great, go on and go and paddle around the lake. But you wouldn't dream of subscribing that to somebody who was trying to get into the Olympics, would you? No, and I know if I'm, if I'm back at the uh, High Performance Centre, I'll spend, I'll be there 12 hours a day. So I, I commute down to work, so I'm on site. It's, that's something I choose to do. But, for, you know, 11 hours, 45 minutes of those, those 12 hours, all I'm doing really is having conversations with people. But in terms of tangible productivity, um, that, you know, I haven't written this or done that or, you know, booked the whatever, but it's those conversations, it's back to those sense-making, it's the checking in, it's the support, and it's the developing. Um, so I, I think that, that's, that's really important as well, that I could be on site, but it's what you're measuring in terms of productivity you know long-term short-term development or whatever but very often we've got to have this piece of a4 because that says that we've been productive for that day but yeah. yeah and that's where i think it goes back all the way around to where we started regarding decision making isn't it so you're making a decision of where you spend your time whether it's having those conversations engaging your staff checking they're okay checking for understanding learning what's going on with them versus that black and white list of of, of productivity so um yeah, yeah, we've got back to shared mental models, you know, just, just showing that we've all got clarity on that. Because again, that sense making becomes very important. You know, you're taking this information, you're turning that into knowledge, and then, oh, we need to we need to move that knowledge now into this context. And that requires a little bit of wisdom. Um, you know, if you're looking at that stuff that Rowley's put in there. So I think that, that's really important as well, how you you're helping people conceptualize and turn these concepts into some representation and then from that representation. Uh, off we go, you know. Yeah, definitely. And I'm just conscious of time's got time's absolutely flying along here. And I know we could talk for another few hours, no doubt, before we start getting into the banter and the stories of the past <laughs> and all that. But I think there's loads of good stuff in there, you know, that people can go and research. And I'll put some links um, wherever they find this, this this podcast later on. But from me, Scott, I just want to I want to cut it off there before we go into another avenue. Um, thanks so much for your time man. it's really enlightening it's it's insightful and to be honest with you your personal story is inspiring as well so thanks so much for, for sharing that with us it's been a pleasure phil really enjoyed it thanks yeah so thanks so much and all the best with your, your adaptation moving forward of whenever tokyo is going to take place i'm sure it will do whenever <laughs> <laughs> thanks Everybody. mate take care and i'll speak to you thanks. soon bye-bye all we hope you enjoyed the latest edition of the p3 podcast if you'd like to engage further with us, then please come and follow us across all social media platforms. We're on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube. And of course, follow us on wherever you get your podcasts to be one of the first to be notified of any new content.